Hey, listeners, thanks for listening again. However you listen through uh, streaming. Probably not that many people that downloading more than once. But uh, Do we have any sort of live live streaming? I guess like, through the website is live streaming, right? But we're not oh, on live any... Live streaming? What are you talking about? I don't know what I'm talking about. How do people how do people find out what we're doing, hear what we're doing? On our website, and then I occasionally tweet about stuff, but I haven't been keeping up with that as of late because I just want to stay Is on that, Twitter. That's why our numbers are, are not increasing because Alexander has not been tweeting? Probably not. <laughs> I got followed by like five people the other day that are probably robots when I tweeted for the first time in a few months, so that was positive. So robots are learning... Uh, they're compiling all this information about uh, Canadian movies mm-hmm. through us. Great. Because uh, that's what we do. We talk about Canadian movies. This is the Filmed in Canada podcast. Over there is Alexander Cairns. And on this other side of the place where we're in is uh, William Lee. Thanks. And we've got another person. Yeah, he's a gentleman who knows... <laughs> yeah, he's a gentleman who knows the difference between shit and good chocolate. Gentlemen... Tell us who you are. Uh, well, I do know the difference, but I think most people would. It's probably not that hard to discern, differentiate between those two items. I am Corbin Salikin. We're talking about Hardcore Logo today, uh, directed by Bruce McDonald. Uh, it's from, it was released in 1996. Uh, screenplay by Noel S. Baker, based on the book by Michael Turner. Uh, you got notes this time. Yes, and I brought them along. The one, one page, one page of notes. Um, it was it was my first time seeing the movie. Um, how about you, Alexander? Same. Uh, but you've seen, you've seen it multiple times. I saw it in the theater when it came out at the Granville 7. I think it was the only, might have been probably the only person in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a pretty well-known Canadian movie, the hardcore logo. Um, I think so. Well, it got yeah. distributed by Quentin Tarantino. So Yeah, uh, I was just showing um, Alexander earlier. I, had the one, I have one of the DVDs that's branded uh, Rolling Thunder Pictures. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that he had a distribution company yeah. it was pretty small i think it was that was back in the day where really the only way to get canadian distribution was to get picked up by an american distributor yeah who's going to distribute it and yeah i don't think he i don't think he did too many films he did sort of a bunch of kind of uh kind of the hardcore those those kind of weird kind of biker movie kind of things but then i don't know if there's too many other ones other than hardcore logo that he picked up I don't know if that Rolling Thunder label is active anymore. Uh, probably not. Yeah. I don't think I haven't seen anything from it. Yeah. I guess there's other ways of getting. Yeah, uh, I mean, he just do like Quentin Tarantino presents kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay, what is this movie about? It's about a it's about a punk band. Mm-hmm. They reunite for a tour because they hear about uh, uh, one of their friends, uh, one of their mentors, uh, Bucky Hate. Bucky Hate has been uh, has been injured in a um, well, he's been assassinated or, or t- an attempted assassination mm-hmm. of him or something of that sort. But they just shot his legs off. Yeah. So, uh, so these guys, four guys, reunite and they go on a cross Canada tour. Western Canada. Western Canada. <laughs> Western and Central Canada. Well, it's still actually weird, weirdly like Winnipeg is still considered Western Canada yeah. for some weird reason. <laughs> yeah, there is no Central yeah. Canada. Yeah, and uh, and along for the ride is a documentary crew headed by Bruce McDonald, um, played by Bruce McDonald. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it's I think it's easy to make uh, a comparison to something like this is Spinal Tap. Yeah, because it's it's about a made-up band. And uh, interestingly, like, now that you mention that title, when they're playing the movie game in the in the van, it it's like one of the movies ends with an S, and then yeah. he says Spinal Tap. But you're you're correct in saying that the title actually is someone, This Is Spinal yeah, Tap. Yeah, someone should have said that. Someone <laughs> should have rejected that. It's always <laughs> bugs <laughs> me. It's, it's always bugs me. <laughs> It was certainly compared to, I know, when it came out, that 
Spinal Tap was the reference point that I wouldn't use, but it's. I when, think it when hurt. When was Spinal Tap made? Uh, early eighties. Yeah. Like eighty one, eighty two, somewhere or eighty four, somewhere around there. Yeah. But I think I think that actually kind of hurt Hardcore Logo because it's not Hardcore Logo is not a comedy. It's got some really funny bits in it. Yeah. So it's, it's not. A, yeah, it's not a satire. Or yeah, like, like that, Spinal yeah. Tap is what I would consider a mockumentary, where it's kind of mocking the documentary form. Yeah. But Hardcore Logo is not, it's a mock documentary in the sense that it's it's a fake documentary, but it's it's adhering to the documentary form more or less. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's pretty genuine in terms of wanting to uh, like show life on the road oh, for yeah. a band. Um, yeah, it's, like you said, it's not it's not making fun of it. It's mm-hmm. kind of like this is what it feels like to be on the road. So, but if you went well, into so the it, movie, it adheres to the documentary form, I'd say until the acid sequence. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like the one with that kind of that time travel thing where they freeze and yeah, they do. But it, it's still. But even you, you can even say like that. The di- that is still in that acid sequence because like they're throwing the camera in the air, which they may have actually been doing. Yeah, like. There is, yeah, because they because they invite uh, Bruce, Bruce yeah, McDonald. They to all drop like even like yeah. the, you see the yeah, cameraman yeah. and the sound guy all taking their their hit. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but so you think uh, you think people like general audiences kind of went in with the wrong impression? I think so because I think what happens is if you go into it thinking it's Spinal Tap and you think it's a joke band, mm-hmm. then you're going to be you're primed for not taking them seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what and that that's what I was struggling with for. I guess really the entire running time until the end of the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, and I can see that being being a, a roadblock to the film. Or yeah. if you don't take them as a like a legit band and it's no, it's not, you're not waiting for that kind of punchline, then I think, yeah, I think that does hurt it. No, I think that's, I think that's very true. I think, um, I think my my reaction to it, I, I was I was trying to keep it measured because I um, I knew it had a reputation, but I knew it was like a fake band and stuff. Though. But uh, we'll, we'll get into all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How much do you know about it in terms of the uh, the Michael Turner book? I've never read the Michael Turner book, but I have read Nolis Baker, the screenwriter, did a uh, a book called Hardcore Roadshow, which was all about the making of. And I've read that. I mean, okay. I read it a long time ago, but. That, that was a fascinating read, just to read how the whole thing was put together. Mm. But yeah, I don't know anything about the book, but I know that that's, that's one of the reasons why the film is so rich, the world, because the world building essentially was done by Michael Turner. So like all those lyrics are from the, the book, mm-hmm. apparently. Mm. Right. Okay, so yeah, yeah. So he gets credited as the, as the songwriter. Probably, yeah. At the end of the movie, and then they're performed by... Such, uh, although I think they they do also credit another band. Yeah, they, they had some, the, they, Yeah, they probably do the, some stuff for the yeah. um, for the actual instrumentation, I yeah. guess. And then, yeah. But I think all the lyrics, because I think it, I, I, I haven't read the Michael Turner book, but I think it's sort of like a scrapbooky type thing where, so like all the the names of the other albums and all those things were he those are from him. So the yeah. whole history of Hardcore Logo was one thing that kind of that that kind of made me feel like it was that. Spinal Tap type satire in the beginning was that the performances at that at that concert at the beginning not not of the other bands but of Hardcore Logo mm-hmm. um, the dubbing just seemed a bit off and like Callum Keith Rennie's fake guitar playing wasn't really up to par so I felt like they were kind of poking fun a bit right but um, yeah as it progresses you definitely don't get the sense that it's that it's really satirical yeah. anyway. Although it is fucking hilarious how they're constantly spitting at each other. <laughs> and that, that was the thing from reading that making of that was just a thing that Hugh Dillon started doing. Yeah. <laughs> like I can't remember the first time that happened. I don't know what 
Yeah. And that's the one thing that bothers me when I rewatch it. It's, it's like when I watch people smoking in movies, I just, I can't handle it. It just makes me feel ill. Yeah. And just watching people spit in each other's faces <laughs> is not enjoyable. <laughs> uh, let's just back up for a second. Since uh, you talked about Hugh, Hugh Dillon. So Hugh Dillon plays Joe Dick. Is that right? Yep. Joe Dick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reading that right. Okay. And uh, so he's the, he's the lead singer. Um, I guess it's his band. He's, yeah. he's, he's, he seems to be in charge. Um, Kelm Keith Rennie uh, plays Billy Talent, who's the lead guitarist. So I thought when I saw that that Billy Talent got their name from this movie, but then I discovered that Billy Talent actually formed in 1993. So, so, they, so, naming, really? yeah, so naming him <laughs> Billy Talent must have been a reference to huh. the band at the time. So it would have been that like they were some unknown Canadian Or they band might have and, got it from the book, Hardcore Road. Oh, okay. So that could have been written before 1993. Yeah, I think because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that I've read that. Right, right, right. So that maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, and so Billy Talent is um, he is he's in the works to join another band as they're going on this tour. Yeah. Right. And and that's sort of the main conflict in the movie is between Joe Dick wanting to be this punk rocker that doesn't give a shit about you know the corporate nature of the music business and um, Billy Talent wanting to embrace that side of it because he wants to actually succeed and, and mm-hmm. make money at his career, and so he he goes down to L.A. and gets into a different aspect of the business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the other two band members are uh, Pipe or Pipe Fitter, played by Bernie Coulson. Um, what's his main characteristic? He's the drummer. Uh, yeah. He squints and scrunches his face a lot when he's drumming so, in yeah, a hilarious way him. as well. He's, yeah. he's on meds, right? Is that like on meds? No, it's no. the other one. Oh, okay. So uh, John Oxenberger? Yeah. yeah. He's on meds. Yeah, and yeah. he's also like... He's a, off meds, I guess. <laughs> right. He misplaces his meds. Yeah. But he's he's the one who's keeping a diary that's yeah. kind of a, a yeah. poetic diary. Yeah, he's the yeah. bassist. Yeah. Okay. Now, I wonder if I wonder if like the book, Michael Turner's book, is, is like told from his, from his perspective because he's actually keeping a yeah, diary. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, so those are the oh sorry and uh, John Oxenberger is played by John Piper Ferguson. So if I if I didn't recognize Callum Keith Rennie, I didn't at first. Yeah, but if I didn't recognize him, like you could you could for a second think that this was a real documentary because I wasn't familiar mm-hmm. with any of the other actors. Mm-hmm. Are any, are either of you uh, Corbin or Alexander in a band? I have been in bands in the past. I have never been in a band. I pl- well, the high school band okay. <laughs> played bass, clarinet, and trumpet. I don't think I don't think that counts. Nice. Did you shit on pillows in your hotel room when you were in high school band? No, okay. no. Um, did uh, how did so? What was your impressions of it in terms of like the portraying uh, the uh, the relationship between these these characters? Did it, did it feel like a band to you? Did it feel like did it feel like four guys who had been playing together for a long time? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I even felt like uh, they, they're introduced at that first concert as they're reuniting and playing for the first time again. And that that beat kind of um, missed for me a little bit because it felt like uh, I had just been introduced to them at the opening of the movie. And it just felt like they'd always been playing together. I, mm-hmm. it didn't, I didn't feel any kind of tension between them. Yeah, but I but I think it plays out later on because I think there is this uh, automatic camaraderie between mm-hmm. them. Um, there's that there's that moment where um, where Billy he's gotten some bad news about potentially joining this other band. He doesn't share it with the others, but uh, it, it felt like when they went on stage, um, Joe Dick 
kind of picked up on the fact that he had this other energy yeah. and he was defending him on stage. Did you, do you know the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so I, I like that. Uh, I, I, it felt like there was a relationship between these guys. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was it's, just, it's almost, um, I feel like it's hinted at a few times that there's like a potential, there's a potential intimate love between Joe and, um, mm-hmm. and Billy as well. Well, there's, it's, I mean, Oxenberger, says it yeah that's something i mean i don't know if that didn't seem like that was very loving supposedly yeah. what went down between the two of them but right yeah 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 he says it to um to the to woman, Mary, the to woman the, who the, the, seemingly like the, has i don't know is this a spoiler i don't know how, i don't know how you handle spoilers on this yeah whatever okay. i think we i think we we remind people <laughs> this, if you haven't seen it yet yeah we remind people that the movie is um 90 20 years old yeah okay <laughs> and it's and it's a good movie so just go look, go watch it and then come back yeah all right so and then we continue yeah, yeah. But yeah, just that, yeah, the scene—the the woman who looks like it has Billy's kid, yeah. the roadie, or not the roadie, the the groupie, yeah, um, yeah. And then John Oxenberger talks about some incident that may or may not have happened between the two. Well, of them. yeah, I mean, he's kind of losing his mind at mm-hmm. that point, so it's hard to say what and what is not reality. But um, yeah, I definitely felt you could feel the history of their relationship, but the entire band as well, mm-hmm. and uh, the dynamic between you know just like not not caring what the drummer thinks and and just kind of telling him to shut the fuck up a lot of the time or like let, letting him sleep in the van while they yeah. while they go into the the, <laughs> the diner that he really likes or whatever all that kind of stuff i felt was was um accurate although i, I guess i've never actually been on on tour with a band i've just been kind of in a band and you, but you have a sense of like with that relationship between people yeah. who have to have to create together in that, yeah. in that space yeah did you like the music in the movie? Are you into, into are you into punk music? Did you did you think that this was authentic sounding punk? I don't know enough about punk rock. To really. I don't know. I mean, I I, quite, I, I like the, the the score for this film quite a bit. There's that there's that kind of it's not quite Middle Eastern, but that yeah. kind of riff that's going through, and then there's so, just that that guitar thing that dun 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 dun. It's yeah. got this really propulsive, and they use it in really nice ways. So I, I watched this movie with with my girlfriend who is of um, Indian descent and she just kind of gets pissed off when, when movie soundtracks for that are like dominated by Western white people have that kind of Mm -hmm. Eastern tinge to them because it's just kind of like any, she, I guess her comment was just that like, it, it feels like it's, anytime they want something to feel slightly like mystical or mysterious or, or esoteric, they just throw in this, this other style of music because we're not as familiar with it kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I guess, I guess I wasn't, I wasn't sold on, on why they needed to use that particular kind of sound in the score Hmm. as opposed to a more, or, or, or even, even just, even something like, um, like, um, the, um, the Johnny Depp, Dead Man, mm-hmm. is it Dead Man? Yep. Yeah. What? What's the fucking director? Jim Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch. Yeah. Like that Neil Young guitar score. You could accomplish something similar in terms of the feel, but not be using these other cultural elements that aren't really related to the movie at all. Um, but if it works, it works. Right? Yeah. I mean, it works. It works for me because yeah. it just adds another. To me, it just there's this. I don't know this epicness to sort of what's going on, but I don't know. There's something about it that I found really evocative. 
It yeah. just added another layer of because it's this contemplative moment. It's usually it's part of these these traveling montages where you get into the, you know if you I mean you've done a road trip you get into those contemplative states as the trees are going by and you start thinking about other things you have nothing else to do and yeah. I just I, I appreciated that because mm-hmm. I don't I just to me this film has has such energy I think it's got more energy than almost like you know half of the other of all the other Canadian movies combined mm-hmm. that's one of the things I love about this movie I think it's, it's got joy which a lot of Canadian films don't have yeah I mean it goes to some really dark places but the fact that it has these moments of real joy and I think that's one thing that is often lacking in Canadian films mm-hmm. you just and and just the innovation you were talking about the way that the techniques and yeah. just just from the beginning like they have that weird opening where they have the the German yeah. over top of just, I just I just love that just like reading it out as if it's if it's um, subtitled or whatever yeah it's yeah. I don't know just, and there's and they're constantly doing things uh, aesthetically that are innovative just stuff where they're always trying something a little different where they have a scene where they're inside the car and all the guys are outside and just the way the the, the sound is done or even that the bit where they're waiting for them to pick them up and they're just standing waiting and you see the it's like that little kind of time jumps as the as the sun comes up yeah just mm-hmm. really cool little moments like that it, it's edited by reg harkema who's also directed a bunch of his own films too but i think i think we were talking just about lightning in a bottle and i think that i mean i don't dislike bruce mcdonald's films in general i think but i think this is the best one of his where the material seemed to really inspire everyone. I think they sh- think I think they shot this in about two weeks. Oh well. And so everyone just came together, and you can tell that everyone was just they coalesced in a way that everyone was kind of firing on all cylinders. And they, yeah, yeah, you yeah. could tell they were just really inspired. I think it just feels like there's this energy. And I know that Hugh Dillon and Callum Keith Rennie from reading the the making of that they really got into it as they were kind of living. They were trying to kind of he was tr- Callum Keith Rennie was kind of trying to keep up with Hugh Dillon, who was sort of the rock star. And so they were basically living that life for the two weeks. Mm-hmm. And you can feel that there's, I don't know, you can just feel all that going on there, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, uh, like, uh, the, um, like the the techniques that are used that seem very, uh, uh, very energetic and uh, maybe kind of uh, before its time, um, that first, uh, the first, the benefit concert that they do at yeah. the beginning, um, uh, we kind of get through the opening acts really quickly um, uh, through use of, uh, of like some still image montages, and I thought I saw like something that was that would uh, you might characterize as a precursor to speed ramping. I thought there was like moments where it seemed like the footage was like just gaining momentum to get through mm-hmm. an act. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think there is a lot of uh, so this is uh, in the '90s before. Um, like speed ramping was a yeah. So was that a, would, that, that's all optical. I mean, that's like there's no digital, obviously. So yeah. those are all optical effects done with an optical printer. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there's just like a lot of uh, uh, of like creative energy in mm-hmm. terms of of how it's pieced together too. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know maybe it is that kind of uh, that experimental kind of uh, rock and roll kind of attitude mm-hmm. to uh, it just looks it looks looks and sounds cool here. Let's just try it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like I feel like rock movies. Uh, or, or just music movies in general kind of lend themselves to, to that kind of experimentation because I like I'm thinking of um, Hedwig and the Angry Inch mm. like that movie just has so many different stylistic flourishes including animation and yep. um, weird lighting and stuff like that that it kind of allows you to I don't know it just yeah it just for whatever reason those directors of those movies whether it's the directors of those movies or the or the genre itself 
just kind of creates a more experimental atmosphere. But so w- with with the style and the technique, I guess like it's all it's all interesting and and perhaps fresh and new in 1996. Um, but I guess something that we've talked about on the podcast in terms of um, Canadian filmmakers and especially newer directors, because he would have made, what, three films at this point? Probably, yeah. Like something Highway like, 61, I think, it'd be done by then. And, yeah. And Roadkill. And yeah. Maybe something else? Yeah, because at, at one point, I don't know if it's Joe or, or Billy, actually says, like, who the fuck are you, no, Bruce Pipe. McDonald? Like, Pipe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Highway 69. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but one of them one of them at some point calls calls him out too and says, "Well, you're a hack director. You've only made these yep. two things or whatever." Um, but I think we I think it might have been in the double happiness episode um, where we kind of talked about new Canadian directors and you know maybe like using all of these different techniques because they're wanting to kind of prove themselves. Or and it was also um, uh, I've heard the mermaid singing because that that movie has a lot of um interesting kind of framing devices and and stylistic flourishes like where where the woman is flying through the flying through the city and um in black and white and yeah. um yeah the, i think so i guess i guess i guess how how does this movie fit i'm asking this of you william maybe but if you've seen those movies as well um, a long time ago i don't yeah. i don't really remember what how does this movie fit into that framework of you know, is it just a new director trying a bunch of things and throwing throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks, or is it to a specific purpose that is different than those movies, or does it does it succeed where those other ones failed? Or I and I and I don't necessarily think that those other two movies necessarily failed at the at the stylistic flourishes that they were going for, but I'm just kind of wanting to c- consider it within the framework of those other '90s Canadian movies that we've talked about on the podcast. I think. When we uh, when we see a lot of like low budgety, I don't know. If I should say low budget when I say Canadian. Uh, like Canadian movies are just generally low budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think there's I think there's a more um, willingness to be unconventional because it has to. Because I think it's I think it seems to me like it's harder to make a conventional movie under the constraints of, of a low budget because it will never look as polished as a Hollywood production. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think there's, uh, there's just a willingness to do something that is unconventional, mm-hmm. um, that looks a bit uh, experimental and gritty. But I think in, in Hardcore Logo, um, because it is uh, about this, like, this punk band and this, uh, this, the character of Bruce McDonald is, as this like, uh, hack director who's trying to prove himself, I think, I think it lends itself to having these touches, which I think... A couple of times are a little bit distracting. Yeah, um, like I think he uses um, uh, like titles on the screen um, to to like break up episodes in this road trip a little bit too much. Mm-hmm. Um, there was when they arrived at Calgary, there was mm-hmm. a graphic on screen which just uh, kind of perplexed me. Do, do you remember what? <laughs> yeah, that was? it was no. some characters like it didn't actually say Calgary. I don't know. I don't know what language it was or if it was a language yeah but it, it, yeah, it was two characters and they repeated so it right. would be like oh a, yeah, yeah, right? yeah they were they they looked vaguely arabic or yeah um but things like that which were uh um you know they they stand out as a uh, a different thing maybe a cool thing but mm-hmm. it also is a bit perplexing sometimes when i when i when at first glance mm-hmm. um there's also uh, you talked about that uh that image of of uh 
of uh, the highway. The highway, and at one time they they put in the title Trans Canada Highway. Like as I'm not sure if that was a necessary thing to put in there. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So. Um, but I, maybe, but specifically for hardcore logo, I think I think it's just that rock and roll attitude of like all this all this stuff. We're just trying it. Maybe uh, maybe it appeals to you. Maybe it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was there anything? Was there? Anything well, I guess I guess to? I just I I don't. Specific, specifically because those other two movies that we've talked about were directed by women, I do not want to give this movie a pass on all of the stylistic nonsense that it throws at the wall. Okay. <laughs> because I feel like I feel like we did challenge the, both of those movies for, you know, it's like, well, why are they trying all of these different things? Or, you know, why is Adam McGoyan using different different film stock and different, um, you know, using using VHS video and using all of these different techniques? Why are they doing this? Um, I guess I guess I'm just wanting to challenge it and not just say, "Oh, it's really cool." Okay, all right. No, that, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, the other thing that was uh, that, that occurred to me while watching it, uh, especially when uh, when the segment with uh, Mary the Fan comes up, there's a title that says Mary the Fan. Yeah. And it's I mean it's it's not a it's not a significant significant detour for the narrative. I mean, I, I think I think that kind of just falls in there uh, naturally in terms of of where they're going in the story. Yeah, I don't think it's I don't think it needs to be set apart as another chapter in the story. Yeah, the thought that occurred to me was, is this an influence from Quentin Tarantino? Because right. Quentin Tarantino drops in titles for his uh, different parts of his chapters of his, or whatever. Yeah, he yeah. puts in chapters. Yeah. He puts them out of order sometimes. Yeah. is that just like well, it works for him, so we're going to do it too? Yeah, that, that, that you know that's that's something that occurs to me, but. Um, but not enough. It, it doesn't. It doesn't run against the grain for me enough to say like oh, I hold it against it. Right. It's just uh, well, that's. I think they tried. Yeah. You know. Is that is that? You know, it's it's probably in, again not having read the original book. I suspect that that's how the book is also broken up. So there's probably a Mary the Fan chapter in the book. Yeah. So I suspect that that's partly. So the way it is, is it's this collection. You know, it's this collage, this montage of hardcore logo, and so that's why they're aping a bit of that. With or like when they go to each location, it's like how many miles they've driven, yeah, how many cigarettes they've smoked. Yeah, I thought that was it. Yeah, so I think because even like with that, the thing with the um, with the highway, with that rolling, you don't know at first. It looks kind of like a highway, and then it's not. They they then they reveal later, and then when you have the the lines, they go get all swiggling and stuff, and they pull back, and you actually see that it's not. But at first, the illusion is. It's it's there, I think. I mean, I remember the first time watching it. You know, it looks like it could just be that. Yeah. But yeah, so with that, like, I don't, I don't know what the purpose of showing the lines kind of squiggling around is, other than yeah. to to kind of reveal if it wasn't already obvious that it was fake, that it's fake. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, yeah. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure what. Yeah. If you were to ask Bruce, like, what is within the context of the story, what. It's What's the, the motivation for yeah. that, and, and what does it reveal about the story or yeah. the characters or whatever? I don't know that it, that, that I it know, does. I don't know if it's, it maybe it's just a part where, and it probably is, because, you know, as they go along, things start to break down, literally and figuratively, mm-hmm. and so that is a point where things just start going crazy. You know, things go off the rails, and that's where that comes right, in. Right, right. So, I mean, it does, there is sort of some thematic cohesion, I think, to that. Mm-hmm. One thing that I found unsettling or upsetting is um, just how John's mental illness isn't really addressed in any way. And, and um, 
like how serious it is mm-hmm. despite the fact that joe is just like like you need to listen to me like you need to stay focused and it's like that i don't think that's how schizophrenia or whatever he has works like you can't just turn it off and it seems like that's what the other the other band members expectation is of him and and it also seems like he just kind of he is able to just kind of turn it off or or that he does somehow manage to hold on to his reality to finish the tour well, despite he, the but, fact that he might not actually be able to do that yeah but once his i think once his medication goes i think he's pretty he starts to uh yeah i think i think his condition kicks in and it's slowly because i guess it's, i i'm not hugely familiar with that but i assume it's the kind of it's the kind of thing where it's not a, an immediate thing. It's yeah. as stuff wears off. Yeah, but I guess I, I know guess what you're saying because it, it's that the other characters don't. But I don't, don't know if that's really unrealistic. Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's it is very uncomfortable to watch how they're all being such dicks to him. Yeah, but I guess that's what makes it. I mean, I, it's not unrealistic that these guys would be like that to yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. But I know I, I because agree. They, they just don't know how to deal with it. Themselves, yeah, and so. they don't really. Yeah, but it it, it I agree. It's, it is a very difficult thing to watch you just want to say don't understand like when he's asking them, have you seen his pills and they just they're just mocking him for his stutter yeah so i mentioned the ending being like i i i, I think about this in uh in relation to a number of of like some of them are are sort of my have become my favorite movies in a lot of ways where like i kind of watch the whole movie and i'm not really getting it or i'm not that into it and then it's kind of in the last five minutes or even the la- the final scene that kind of recontextualizes everything for mm-hmm. me and, and and brings it up to another level and two two of them for me are uh, existence and dancer in the dark um where both of those movies i kind of I, I went along enjoying them but not really connecting with it and then the ending hits and it's like holy fuck like i need to go back and watch this movie again um and this movie has a very shocking ending. Mm-hmm. And it got me thinking about the Canadianness of it in a weird way, even though, even though it's about this mental deterioration, uh, although you don't even really get the hint, get that, the, the, the hint that Joe might be suicidal throughout no. the movie. I guess there, 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 if you watch it, like if you do rewatch it, there are, there's actually, I think it's in that first it might even be in that in the in the opening um, montage of all the bands. There's a still frame of him shooting himself. Oh, really? Yeah. Like if you watch it again, there are it is, and even the the, the poster for the movie actually tells you. Yeah. Because the last line of the poster for the movie is one last shot. Right, right, right. So it actually literally tells you what yeah, the yeah, ending yeah. is going to be. So. And then and then I don't know if it's in the it's in the hallucination sequence or at other points in the movie but i feel like there there are other points where a gun is shown on mm-hmm. sc- on screen but not necessarily in connection to other yeah. characters or whatever but yeah so I, so so like you're saying it, there are subtle hints at it but he specifically doesn't say to the camera no. that he's had suicidal thoughts no. or anything like that um and so i don't know for whatever reason it just kind of immediately resonated with me after that when that when that ending hits that i started thinking about it as um that he's that he kind of represents canada and then billy talent represents america or or corporate culture and um how he like he as as 
a person, but also as a punk rocker and as a musician is fully committed to his craft and doesn't care if they're, if they're playing to an empty audience. He doesn't care if he's never going to make any money. He's like, you know, I'll get by, I'll figure it out. And that is how a lot of Canadian filmmakers operate yes. in, yes, in, it is. <laughs> in, in, in the discussions that we've had with other people, but also just listening to interviews or, or no, whatever. I mean, like, I like the same thing. And, 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 and that's, and that's true of, of most media mm-hmm. when it comes to Canadian creators or, yep. or Canadian artists, because there, there isn't the, the same audience for whatever we create and, or whatever other Canadian artists create. And, um, yeah, so it kind of, it, it, it brought it to a different thematic place, I guess. And, and, and I, I kind of, I appreciate the movie more on a broader level of it being about this, this conflict of how do you, how do you survive and how do you create things on your own terms, Mm -hmm. um, versus kind of buying into, buying into corporate culture and buying into, you know, creating things to please other people or to make money or whatever Billy Talent's motivations are. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's, wow. I didn't didn't think of it in that that way. Uh, When you uh, talk about like what Joe, uh, Joe Dick represents. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it's like, and it's like he shoots himself in the end, in the head at the end because he realizes you know, maybe I can't actually do this. Because well, the one thing he, because he had, yeah, because he, you know, they went through that and then Billy says, okay, you and me, we're going to do this. And Joe's like, okay, finally, I've got this. I know what I'm going to do. And then Billy takes, takes that away from him again at the end. Yeah. He's like, well, that's, I get, there's nothing, there's nothing mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And interestingly, that wasn't, I don't know what the original ending, I don't know what the book ending is, but that was something that actually Hugh Dillon came up with. He came up with that ending. That's what I, from reading that making up book, apparently halfway through the shoot, he just said, this is what has to happen. He went and told Bruce McDonald, and they all agreed, absolutely, that's got to be the ending. And Telefilm yeah. was like, no, <laughs> that cannot be the ending. You have to shoot an alternative. And they kept on saying, okay, or you have to come up with another one. I said, okay, yeah, we'll come up with something else, and yeah. we'll, we'll do it. And they never did, and so that was, ended up being the end. But he, that, that movie could not have ended really any other way. Like, it just, yeah. it makes perfect sense with what's going on in the movie. But it's interesting to see that that wasn't, I don't know what the original one would have been. If it, it just sort of said, okay, if it ended with the fight or something, I mean, that would have just been... I don't know. Just wouldn't have had that impact. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a really strange scene as well with um with John oh, just yeah. re- what is he, what is he repeating? I think some about love. All you need is no, it's not all you need is love, but it's yeah. something in the end there's love. I yeah. guess in the end and then pipe just at the end he starts breaking his drums and yeah. yeah. No, it's it's interesting. Well, each person it's the extreme of all of their their realities, yeah. their personalities just come. And then even like Billy is so drunk, he can't even stand up yeah, and yeah. Like all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel like that culminates, um, in a really interesting way for, for all four characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the, uh, if, if you want to talk about like where each character reaches that ultimately, uh, what about Bruce McDonald? Uh, cause he, at some point he also makes a choice to like, I'm going to, I'm yep. going to do something that provokes a reaction, like when he when he um, happens to record a conversation between Joe and, right, and, right, right. and Billy, right? So he's also or he or he he record he records the radio station interview where he finds out yeah. that that Billy is going to be going into this other band, Jennifer, right? And right. then tells um, yeah tells Joe yeah yeah he yeah. has that moment where he says we're cool, Bruce. He goes, oh yeah, yeah, we're cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's so he's deliberately uh, like. 
um, he's manufacturing something that'll play good for the camera. Yeah, but I think also because he he resents that he was lied to about the benefit and Bucky actually not being um, um, handicapped in any way yeah. and hadn't been shot or whatever, and that, that was just completely manufactured. Um, he, I, f- I feel like because because it, it, you think you think that Billy is going to be pissed off when he finds that out about Bucky, but it's actually the filmmakers because mm-hmm. it's like, well, what, what are we making this documentary about? <laughs> and, and so he provokes them, which, which ultimately leads to, to Joe's suicide. Yeah. So, which may have happened anyway, just because that the news would have still existed, yeah. whether he told or not, but it obviously it happened at a point where tensions were as high as they could be. Yeah. So it makes it, it makes it so that in, if this were taking place in some reality, the filmmakers could feel like they actually influenced mm-hmm. That decision and and feel responsible for it. Yeah, which brings up interesting, um, you know, I, I guess that that can be a discussion a lot of the time. Of you know, is an artist responsible for how the public receives their work? I'm thinking someone like Marilyn Manson being responsible for the Columbine shootings or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, what is is what we create um, just a reflection of society or is it, or is it what creates a certain subset of society or can it actually influence things in that way? Right. Are you Good asking? Thoughts. Good thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the, the Aurora Boris. It's, it's both. Yeah. It causes so, it and it, it comments on it and by commenting on it, it perpetuates it. And then it's like that connection where it actually, yeah. Like, do people act the way people sort of learn how to act in relationships from watching movies? And that causes problems, but also movies do, in a way, they do represent relationships too. So it's this weird thing. It's like, well, I know this is how you're supposed to act in this situation because I've seen so many people in movies do that. And then that didn't end up turning, going the way it usually does in the movies. Yeah. But then movies do, you know, they're about people. So they're obviously representing people mm-hmm. to an extent. So. So the, in the hallucination scene, they all take acid, and there is uh, an extended aspect of that scene that involves goat murder. Yes, <laughs> I know. I was I know thinking. That, I, know. I know that we've spoken about yes, your distaste I know. for, for, for this harming animals up. in movies. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. There. This might be the only time where I'm okay with it. Okay. I don't know. It's it's. I guess often. And we've talked about this, how so often it's used as a shorthand yeah. as some sort of, okay, we're like, like the one where somebody has to kill an animal that they've injured or hit with a car to show like the, that that the, person... The invitation we talked about yeah, last time. To, to show that someone has, um, they have the strength of personality, that they're able to put an animal out of its misery. Like that somehow is a shorthand to show that type of person. Yeah. And I really hate that. But it's also because because the, the filmmakers are asking... Or they're they're making the audience experience that animal's um, pain as they're suffering, mm-hmm. and it's you know, like a Get Out. Um, you know, have, you, have you seen? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like there's a scene in that. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. Which, yeah. So I mean, th- th- that's kind of one of those things. I think that's one of the aspects I I really dislike that using an animal's suffering on screen to try to evoke something from an audience. Yeah. But in this way, it happens so quickly that you don't actually see the goat suffer. Right. So it's, you're actually, it's not about the ghost suffering that that's not what that scene is about. It's yeah. about 
these guys that just went just kind of lost it. Yeah. And this is it happened. is it is it pipe after Yeah. And I mean he's I killed a guy. I know. And, and also there's like genuine regret too. So I I think that's part of the thing is that I yeah. just don't like being put through that thing in a movie. And right. so they didn't do that in this. It's right. just this quick little bit and we actually kind of experienced it in the way that they the characters would have I think where they don't really know what's happening right and you see a glimpse of wait what what was that what's going on that was just like, is that a goat head someone's holding up yeah, yeah 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 so that's yeah and but I, I did think about that because we have talked about that yeah. and it's and that's why I won't watch like Andre Rublev but I mean they they really did do some you know they lit a cow on fire and stuff like that so that's a little different yeah but yeah I, I'm a, I yeah so I, I guess I'm okay with it in this one cool for that reason yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't really offended by it in any way. Actually, didn't I didn't realize what had happened until they, until the morning after when they said like that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it played out well in mm-hmm. terms of like just um, like not really understanding the what they were doing in the moment. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it's, it's that lingering on the suffering that I, that really bugs me. Right. And then you know, like, and then see, I I don't know I I wasn't bothered by it in Get Out because I feel like. I feel like that's just it's just kind of like the horror movie thing of, mm-hmm. of of not necessarily showing anything about the character but just putting you in an unsettled yeah state of mind like you just like holy shit that came out of nowhere yeah, I don't really remember how yeah I don't I don't remember how it played out now I, yeah. I mean I remember the scene where it comes across but he has to go in and kill it doesn't he, he does yeah yeah but no it, it does seem a little a little different but I mean and then it does also set up the the cop showing up and and yeah. having that sort of microaggression against him mm-hmm. asking for his license and it's like well he did nothing wrong why are you asking yeah. and um so I, I feel like they don't they don't just use it no. as that quick shorthand they they do develop that scene in a way and, yeah. and use it as a way to show that the girlfriend is on his side even though maybe yeah. she's not and, and, yeah. um but it certainly is it is that tone too or just the unexpected which yeah. is certainly Putting on, putting you on edge. Yeah. One thing I wanted to just when and get out in relation to Canadian film is because I remember when this when I think Hardcore Logo made two hundred fifty thousand dollars in yeah. the theater in Canada. I don't know when if it was re released in the states how that worked. I remember just when it came out and just saying I can't believe that there's compared to all the other movies like I couldn't believe that this movie did that. I thought it deserved to do so much well, yeah, so yeah. much better. But I think one. I mean, I'm sure you guys have talked about it. It's not. A new slash, but I think the big the big problem, like one of the major problems with Canadian film, is marketing. Yeah, because and for example, a film like Ghetto, which cost I think four million dollars. Yeah, but they spent thirty eight million dollars to market it. Yeah, so that's just, that that right there in a nutshell is why Canadian film. Yeah, or just independent film in general, but Canadian film, which is essentially independent film, is always going to have a problem. But and it, and then it turned into I think like the highest grossing yep. film by a black director. Yep. In history. Yeah. Or yeah, the quickest to get to a hundred million. Or yeah, yeah, he's he's done really well and deservedly so. I mean, it's it's a pretty good movie. Yeah. Um, but I think that that right there, the fact that you essentially have to, what is that, ten times your your actual budget to yeah. market it. And in Canada, you don't get, like for my films, like if you get some press, that's basically what you can get for it. There's no other way to market stuff yeah. in Canada. Like you, see, you can't pay for advertising. And first of all, you're not going to get like a wide, wide release anyway. And that's sort of the other thing too, is that yeah. with a Canadian film, if it does get a wide theatrical, because I think you were talking about, in your bon, Good Cop, Bon Cop episode, you were talking about like 300 theaters getting, or remember it was good, Bon Cop 2, it got a big theatrical Release got a few hundred screens in Canada, yeah, yeah. which is, I mean, that's massive, or maybe 150 or something yeah. like that, yeah. 
But with something like that, when you have that many, if you could open it on that many screens at once, then you can capitalize your marketing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if you're just doing a little here and a little there, it's like, well, how do you even market that? Because the people, you can't show the rest of Canada. It's like, well, I can't even see it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge, that's just a huge problem. Like a film like Harker Logos, like it's all word of mouth. It's all just kind of critical. There might be some ads in the paper, I guess, at the time, obviously, but yeah. It's just that's that's the the uphill battle that I don't think will ever really be solved by Canadian film. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. Mandated ads on TV. <laughs> yeah, we all know that the government requiring things to be more Canadian has yeah. worked out well for us. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, I just I just wanted to ask both of you as well. Um, uh, bring it back to the back to the movie. Um, so the the fake documentary. Um, how do you how do you guys feel about the fake documentary as a as a genre or as a way of telling stories? For me, the fake documentary really really um, dates it as a as a '90s early 2000s kind of uh, technique. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, although we talked about No Men Beyond this point, we did talk recently, about it, yeah, and that's a what 2014 movie, yeah, in the fake documentary format. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember us saying it worked favorably for it. No, but but it's it's still it's still um, a way that it's still a method that's used yeah. by filmmakers and especially low budget filmmakers. Well, I think I think it works when when the creators are fully committed to that format and um, and actually think of of creative and inventive ways to utilize it, like you're saying, and and in how certain plot elements are revealed because the filmmakers know things and the and the characters don't or like those those elements I think are are employed well in this movie whereas something like No Man Beyond This Point just feels like they used it so that they could create this future world without having to put any of the production value into actually creating that world and then um, just using the talking head format as a way to tell cheap, cheap jokes mm-hmm. so uh, I don't know. I think it, I think it works well in this movie. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, it, that is one of. There's a lot of. I mean, the, the mock documentary is a, a big Canadian genre. Yeah, and I think part of that is because of budget. Again, yeah. it is cheaper to do. So, in the old days when you couldn't really compete, now it's a little easier with the technology and stuff that you can make things look, to a degree, as good as as other films because of all the post-production stuff you can do. But in the old days, I remember, I remember at a party and somebody came up and said, you know, you know a lot about Canadian film. Like, why do Canadian films always have that that look? And I said, you mean the cheap look? Yeah. Like, why do they always look so cheap? And I think that's when you're trying to make it look like the, the Hollywood stuff, which you never will. And that was back in the day because we just didn't have the gear. But if you did a, a documentary, fake documentary, then you got away. That aesthetic worked. It, so you weren't being judged on the production value on that same level, you can kind of get get away with it that way. Yeah. But sometimes like Fubar, which is another one of my favorite movies, that uses the fake documentary, I think, well. Mm-hmm. But I know it, it, it is a kind of a, but it's, and also because now we got TV shows, like The Office and everything, and it's, it's, it's perpetuated that, and it's just that, well, lack of exposition, we're, we'll just cut to somebody explaining the scene now. And they don't really yeah. do that. I don't think they, they use the interviews, and most of the interviews are kind of on screen with other people. Yeah. In Harco Logo. But they, I mean, they occasionally they have those, they keep on cutting back to them at the Cal, Capilano suspension bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what they're actually talking about is not so much about what's going on in the documentary. So it's not sort of that reality, that weird reality TV thing where you see something play out 
on TV, the scene, and then you have a cut to the people commenting on what just happened. And I'm always wondering, well, when exactly did they record these interviews? Yeah. It's such a weird yeah, yeah, thing because you're saying, and I was thinking, I'm going to do this. Like, well, like how soon after? It's just such a yeah. strange thing. But Hardcore Logo, all those interviews are more, they're, they're obviously done before the tour. And yeah. they're, they're kind of a broader theme, so not specifically commenting on the narrative. So maybe that's kind of a thing. I haven't seen yeah. the No Men, the one that you're yeah, talking yeah. about. Maybe, are they talking about specifically what is going on? Like it's sort of like narration in a way? Yeah. Yeah, and so Hardcore Logo doesn't do that, yeah. which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Because I can't imagine the guys wanting to come back and do interviews after what <laughs> they know happened at the end of the movie. Yeah. None of them are going to come in. Yeah. <laughs> but but hardcore, hardcore Logo really... Um, feels like uh it feels like um a work in progress mm-hmm. but it also feels like a polished doc or not polished yeah. but like a finished documentary because there's the there's the choices to to intersperse those interviews like uh, in different parts uh, yeah where it where it does add commentary um to what's happening uh to the characters um like the do you know what i mean like there's uh, there's editorial decisions that yeah. take place oh, absolutely afterwards. oh yeah but you also see the raw stuff where mm-hmm. um where the, the filmmaker, filmmakers are interacting with uh, with their subjects so it's also the unfinished stuff so it's yeah. kind of a, it's, a, it's a hybrid of is it is it in progress or is it a finished thing so is when we get to the uh, when we get to the final scene is that is that a is that a moment sorry is that a moment that um um, that Bruce McDonald, the filmmaker, says this: this is the this is the culmination of the work that I've made, uh, of this of this work that I made. Or was it an accident that he arrived there? And mm-hmm. it's like, oh my God, it ends it ends now because we didn't expect to get here, right? Because if because if it's if it's if it's finished, it, it brings up that ethical question of like, well, this is the thing that you've provoked to make your art. Yeah. Um, and now it sits here as uh, as this tragedy, right? Mm-hmm. As a, that that you brought on, mm-hmm. but it but it's also the thing that uh, the filmmaker would, uh, as a final product, say, "This is what I, this is what I've created. I'm proud of it." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's I think it just comes down to whether or not the the particular combination of documentary elements feel genuine. And and sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And I and I think a lot of it has to do with that balance of, of, like showing the seams and 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 showing. Showing the imperfections of it, and not trying to create something that's so polished and feels like it's, you know, could be broadcast on on just some daytime PBS special or whatever. Um, but. With with regards to the the whole concept of of like people talking about a scene that just happened and when are these interviews taking place, I feel like I feel like it could actually be um, the the perpetuation of reality television. And I think what, when we saw when we watched No Man Beyond this point, you were saying you know maybe the next wave is people doing kind of faux reality shows, mm-hmm. but I feel like that is a thing that happens in a lot of reality shows as well. And so it could just be something that the average viewer has just kind of accepted as, oh, yeah. as like, well, well they, they don't, they're not, they're not paying attention to the fact that continuity wise, this doesn't make yep, sense absolutely. because I've been watching, I've been watching the most recent season of the bachelorette and <laughs> it's actually, it's quite entertaining. I, 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 yeah, <laughs> I, would, I, I would, I would recommend it, yeah. but um, it, constantly throughout that show 
they'll cut to someone talking about what's happening on screen and it's like there's no chance that they would have been able to get get a genuine interview out of this person as this other action was going on because it's like they're in the other scene that's happening so yeah. I, it just makes no sense but they're but they're talking about it as if it's happening in real time yeah i know it's so weird yeah and um i don't know why they do it like i because 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 i guess maybe they've just they've just tested audiences and they think it's more fake if people are talking about stuff after the fact i don't know but i feel i guess i guess it's just every if it, they have to make it feel like everything's happening in the moment for it to feel genuine mm-hmm. or to, for it to feel more genuine but if you're really paying close enough attention it feels less genuine in a way yeah well i think um the language of reality tv has has just been so well absorbed that I think there's conventions now about how how to structure that language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's even there's a series of of advertisements for a for a truck, which are they're framed as a reality TV moment, right? Yeah. Where you know the ones I'm talking about, where they, they have a group of and it says right on the screen these are these are not actors. <laughs> they'll have a group of people who look average, right? And they'll be like coming to this barn. For no reason, oh, here's a new truck, and then they act surprised. Oh my God, I got to see a new truck, right? Because reacting, because because it's it's like they're occupying a space where they're stars of a show where they're being introduced to a truck. They react to a truck. Like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to get to drive this truck, and you know, um, it's because it, because it's because that's how we communicate. These are real people and real reactions. Yeah. Um, so I guess in the '90s, um, when we didn't have reality TV in, in this in this vein, um, the that in between slot of real and fake was was the documentary, and mm-hmm. uh, and so that that approximation of like this is this is what an unpolished um, unpolished cinematic work looks like um, that that's closer to reality, closer to the raw stuff. It, it's uh, it's that documentary. Um, I don't know if, if somebody made a, uh, a fake documentary today. I think it would certainly have a different feel because I think we have so many uh, walls up about about what penetrates uh, as truth. Mm-hmm. I think we were just very skeptical about the information that we're receiving now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and people don't even realize because that's that certainly because it is that sort of that office that that phenomenon. The way those things are shot, where the camera it's always where it needs to be. Yeah, no, it, I, we, I, we talked about that in that No Men Beyond This Point episode, too, where it, that show, I've been re-watching it, and it's like, yeah, constantly. The, 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 cinema, the office? This, yeah, yeah, the cinematography just never makes any sense. Yeah. And yeah. they also have multiple cameras in, in like, a, that small office yeah. space. Yeah. And, yeah. But in, you know, in Hardcore Logo, the camera isn't always where it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, they're outside a, a window, and they see, and they keep rolling. And I mean, that, what I like about that is that they actually, they don't kind of, re- they don't often repeat the same technique or gag they'll kind of do a different here's oh here's the bit where he thinks his mic is off but he's got the hot mic or here's yeah. there's and then they also you know then they have the, the slow motion shots yeah which i think are pretty cool but to, to go back to where you're saying william about how it's constructed i mean that's where all i mean if you really want to get into it obviously breaks down as a as being a documentary at the end because it's not a work in progress because there's no way that they'd cut that up into that point and they said okay well that's the final shot because they were still on tour. They're shooting film, so there's absolutely no way they would have had that footage until long after the fact. Anyway, sorry, what footage? All I mean, all the footage that you're seeing. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't have been cutting it as they went along. No. So that's all in the world of Hardcore Logo, the documentary that we were watching. That's all constructed after. It's almost like, have you seen Gimme Shelter? 
the measles. Mm-hmm. It's sort. I mean, in some ways, it's sort of like that. Like you're seeing the Altamont stabbing, and then you. That's the thing they captured on film, and then they, you're kind of going back, and then they're constructing a documentary about that. Yeah, they're they're creating they're creating yeah. the narrative. Yeah, but I I feel like that's just. But to think about it from the point of view of the filmmaker within that world, like what would that be like to now make that documentary now that you know this is what's happened? I mean, that would just be such a strange... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be kind of an interesting film in and of itself, in mm-hmm. a way, to just sort of... And then, and then to think that they've employed these hyper-stylized techniques in this context makes it very strange. I mean, it doesn't really make it like you're going to go do that kind of stuff when you you know this is how it ends yeah like in some ways you're just gonna say well that's it i'm not finishing this thing i mean that would be probably the that's probably what you would really do in that state because you're being you're being paid by joe dick anyway with this kind of blood money (laughs) yeah Mm. good point but you know that we wouldn't have hardcore logo so (laughs) yeah all right i think uh i think we're ready to wrap up this discussion (laughs) yeah you sound tired man do i um, we have a made up and arbitrary rating system that you are likely familiar with at this I, point. Yep, I've heard it. I don't even know what we did last time because I just said 80, but we do prime numbers and I gave it 70 fish instead of leaf. So I don't know what's going on anymore, man. Um, but this one will say 97 leafs. How many? Uh, well, I mean, as I said, this is my favorite Canadian film. One of my favorite films of all time. So I'm just going to give it infinity leaves. I was going to I was going to give it infinite leaves for a different reason because there are quite a few leaves in the movie. Yeah. Which which I found strange because it's set in the winter, or or at least there's snow at various points in the movie. But then it also feels like it's fall because there's still leaves on the tree. But going over maybe going over, you know, that aspect because they're going over kind of Rogers Pass and stuff. There probably would be yeah. snow there. There might be so in the mountainous areas, yeah. there was snow, and then in the cities, there's... But there was a bit of snow of in the cities, too, I think. So. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's just... A, maybe that's a part of Canada that we're not familiar yeah. well, this, with. Because that's in one the, of its like in, the, in the prairies, it's maybe very they Canadian do get snow film, yeah. before the leaves have all fallen yeah. off the trees. Right. So, uh, so did you say your score, Alexander? I said infinite. Oh, okay. That's right. um, I'll give it 85. Cool. Whatever it was out of... Speaking of, speaking, of, <laughs> speaking of being very Canadian, uh, we also um, uh, have a running glossary of uh, of like uh, characteristics of Canadian films. Uh, did you notice anything that uh, that was very characteristically Canadian in this movie? Um, well, I, I don't know. Maybe a, a, a perhaps a new one. Just that uh, the story portraying that aspect of the challenges of, of being a Canadian artist and, and getting recognized beyond any level of, of sort of localized. Oh yeah. That's, that's taking it too seriously. I was just thinking like, there's a lot of swearing. We talked about swearing before <laughs> we just, we're, we're freely, they freely say fuck in Canadian movies. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a TV personality cameo. Yep. Terry True. David Mulligan, Terry David Mulligan. Um, yep. <laughs> he was a, he was a mainstay on uh, television. He still is, right? He just he shows up in yeah, like all does, sorts of stuff. He does stuff. He used to do. He used to host a music video thing back yeah. in the '80s. Uh, There's a Kala Homoko reference. Maybe I'm not sure how many other Canadian films name check Carla Homoka, but oh, Hardcore that's, Logo does. That's right. Yeah. Maybe the first. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they also uh, they also name dropped uh, CBC Radio, and of course, there's lots of uh, lots of recognizable West Coast landmarks. Yeah. Well, and I guess and, all the bands at the beginning were. Yep. Local Vancouver punk bands. Yep. 
Okay. Any uh, final? The, uh, we've done our last thoughts on Hardcore Logo. Check out our other content on filmedincanada.net. Uh, don't email us at filmedincanada at gmail.com. I would still recommend that people email us, but maybe we're just divided on that point. Okay. And, and Alexander's not tweeting. Not I, I did. I actually did. I did tweet about hardcore logo. Oh, okay. So I've done. I've done this a few times. So I, I tweeted hardcore pogo, and then went said hashtag change one letter, make it a pogo. Because <laughs> there, there's there every once in a while there will be some hashtag that goes trending and it's like change one letter make it something, and it's like change a movie title and then it becomes another thing. And so, Hardcore Pogo. So I'm going to see if I can get that trending. Because there's lots of Ogo-related movie titles. It shows how little I know about Twitter. <laughs> that's a thing. I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. Uh, I've done a few of those, actually. I was actually thinking about doing one for your movie as well. Cha- Patterson's Wafer. Ooh. Change one letter, make it a wafer. <laughs> <laughs> I still, uh, Okay, but you already, you already said what it changes to when you say change it to... Yeah, but then you tap on the hashtag and you see what everyone else is doing. <laughs> filmed in Canada. Change one letter, filmed in Canada. Like that? No. <laughs> you need to change one of the letters. Okay. <laughs> so it's like... Filmed, film, filmed in Canada. Filmed on Canada? <laughs> well, but you could change a C in Canada to a K. So still film, filmed in Canada, change one letter, filmed in Canada. <laughs> no, make it a filmed in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. Please listen again.